0: Tēnā No my mai, hi, mai, welcome to Animal Matters, brought to you by Safe for Animals. We're back after two weeks, it's been cold, it's been wet, I'm acting like I'm surprised, but I really shouldn't be because it's winter, it's probably windy where Courtney is because she's in Wellington, how are you coping with things?
1: Hey Will, I'm actually alright today. There's no wind so far, but like you say, it's Wellington, so I'm sure it's not far off. We've had a really nice weekend. In cold, but sunny, so I'm counting my blessings. What's Christchurch been like?
0: Uh, the weekend was fine, uh, today it is very overcast. Christchurch is cold. We don't get much rain, we don't get much wind, but we get a lot of cold. Yeah, that's the way it is at this time of year. Although only a few weeks ago we had lots of flooding as well, because that's torrential weather, which is... Had a lot of, an, a, a bit of an impact on animals and a pretty negative impact as well. Um, so one of the first topics we're going to talk about today is this issue that arose at a paddock in Templeton, which is near Christchurch. So... This was the last week of July, July 27, Safe Received, a tip-off. For those listening, a little bit of a warning. Uh, Some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about right now may be a little bit distressing. We'll be discussing, um, unfortunately, some animals that have died. So, Safe Received, a tip-off, the last week of July, about these animals. There was about 8 to 10 sheep that had been Dumped amongst gorse bushes in Templeton near Christchurch. Some of these sheep had been there for quite some time. They were in various stages of decomposition, but safe understand some of those um, animals would have recently died as well. So there were about two dozen sheep remaining on the paddock still, as well as three cows. People in the area, they were pretty concerned about the situation. It wasn't a lifestyle block, so the paddock wasn't attached to a house or anything like that. Uh, It was just a piece of land that was surrounded by residential property. Uh, Full view of the public, basically. So... When SAFE was contacted about this, we got in touch with MPI to let them know about the situation, The Ministry for Primary Industries. Of course they have a warrant under the Animal Welfare Act to investigate animal welfare issues on farms. SAFE sent them a map, essentially pointing out exactly what property it was. Um, And I understand it as well that MPI had received one other complaint from a member of the public. Now this is where things get a little bit confusing. MPI sent an inspector to the property But they reported that they found no animal welfare concerns. By this point, SAFE had obtained photos and video that confirmed that there were dead sheep lying amongst these gorse bushes. So without much result from MPI, SAFE took this to the media. By this point, it was August 5, and SAFE specifically myself, I spoke to Radio New Zealand, I spoke to News Hub about this issue, um, and they had both received a statement from MPI where they said that they found no evidence of dead sheep. I eventually got a call from an MPI regional manager, uh, and this was the end of the day on August 5, it was a Friday, and MPI said that not only did they not find dead sheep, but they didn't see any gorse bushes either. So by this point I was kind of wondering well did you go to the right property (laughs) because it wouldn't have been hard to find Um, and if they did why did they not find them. So we sent MPI the photos and the videos and they said that they would look into it and they did last week MPI contacted SAFE again. This time that they said that they went back to the property and they did find the dead sheep among the gorse bushes. It turns out that the the first inspector, they did go to the right property, but they perhaps didn't do a full walk through the paddock. Um, In short, Courtney, it was a bit of a shambles. One moment they didn't find anything, but it wasn't until Safe went to the media that they did find something. They did find the dead sheep. It's a little bit of a credibility issue, don't you think? The MPI, it took them essentially a week and a half, perhaps two weeks to get to the, to the find the dead animals. Yeah. What, what's your take on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty disappointing and surprising, I think, that we had to resort to going to media before MPI was able to respond to those issues. I mean... to to sort of contact you and say that there were no dead sheep that they could see, but also no gorse bushes was quite a random, it was quite random. um, And it it was a surprise, I think, because I don't have that much, um, you know, I've not interacted with MPI before. So from your perspective, because you have, and because you really led on this, what would be, the expectation of MPI in this instance? What what were you hoping that they would do in that first instance?
0: Yeah, so i um, obviously wearing my podcasting hat right now, but if I take that off, my other job at SAFE is investigations and rapid response. So we get tip-offs from the public reasonably frequently, um, and one of the first things we tell them is to report it to MPI uh, because they have that warrant under the Animal Welfare Act to investigate animal welfare concerns on on farms. While I would have expected that they would have done a thorough walkthrough of the paddock, um, it wasn't a large paddock and when I sent MPI the map it was pretty clear where it was that they needed to look. From what I gather, and this is completely my assumption, but it's based partly off of my conversations with MPI. From what I gather was they looked at the remaining animals and they came to the conclusion that the remaining animals were in good condition and therefore there was nothing obvious to them that was of concern. And just didn't, again, do that proper walkthrough of the paddock.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting as well, because obviously in looking at the video that was obtained, there were, of course, there was the dead sheep along the gorse bushes and along the fence line there, but there were live sheep in that paddock as well. I mean, it was heartbreaking. There was a lamb that was just next to these dead sheep, and I, I, I don't understand how that would be not an issue for the living animals that are still there.
0: Yeah, and there's, there's a wider issue here. One is that the animals remaining were still alive and for whatever reason that was considered satisfactory. The, the way that the animals did die... It's unlikely we'll get to the bottom of it. And from what I've been told from MPIs, if an animal dies, you really need to figure out within 24 hours to to be able to ascertain how it would have died. And considering these animals had probably been there for, for much longer than 24 hours and some of them for probably a number of weeks or months. We're likely never to know how that would have happened. Now, when these animals were found, this was after a period of pretty awful weather. There was a storm ripping through most of the country. There was flooding around Christchurch, torrential rain. So, potentially some of these animals could have died of exposure. And from what I understand, and this is not just MPI, this is across the country. This is just something that happens at this time of year, right? Um, especially with lambs. And there were some lambs that had died uh, on this paddock when they're born at this time of year. They can die because of cold exposure, things like that. And now this is a much bigger issue in New Zealand, which is to do with shelter on farms. A lot of farms, most farms, don't actually have adequate shelter. They might have trees, they might have hedgerows, and that's about it. And really, that's probably not adequate shelter to protect animals during such cold weather. Really, it calls into question, why are we even... Why are lambs being born at this time? Why are they lambing during these cold periods? The assumption I'd want to make is, um, it's probably so there's, you know, lamb to sell to, in supermarkets coming into, to spring, spring and summer, but, Obviously, the the conditions really aren't the best for newborn lambs when it's freezing cold outside and there could be torrential rain. So, yeah, there's some wider structural problems going on here in terms of the way that we treat animals, especially in winter, adequate shelter on farms. But coming back into this specific example, it's really just been a shambles. MPI were alerted by a member of public. They were alerted by SAFE. And they just didn't do a thorough investigation. Now they have found the evidence. What happens next? I'm not sure. They say that they'll be keeping in touch with, with with the person in control of the animals. I'm sure that's likely just to ensure that they're getting adequate feed, and that'll be about it, as probably. Which which is a shame because it means that we'll never get. we we'll likely won't get to the bottom to as to how these these animals died.
1: Yeah, that was definitely a tough. A tough week, um, sort of watching those videos. Even for me, d- all this discussion around it is really yeah. It's tough to have that that sort of rhetoric going on where it is sort of just okay. It, it's just something that happens, you know that that deaths on farms just happen and and that's okay and it's sort of just seen as a bit of a. A little bit of a knockback, but really nothing to essentially look at and change. And I think this could be the start of a conversation, a wider conversation about exactly what you're talking about. Is that okay? Is it just something that we sort of go, yeah, fair enough. I mean, people need to have those products on the shelves and, and it's worth it. And those deaths are sort of just something that we deal with. I mean, I think it's worthy of a a much bigger discussion, like you say, but it's just a symptom. And so that's been, it's been pretty tough to to look at those videos and and have those discussions and really hear about what MPI did or didn't do in response.
0: Yeah, that was the thing I found most frustrating about it all was they... They had two complaints, not just from SAFE, but from a, a member of the public as well. They had a map pointing out exactly where they needed to go um, and and they didn't find it. Um, you know, MPI... Are constantly telling the public if you see issues or you have an animal welfare complaint, get in touch with the MPI. They give out their 0800 number. And then things like this happen where people do the right thing and they, they make those complaints and MPI drop the ball, essentially, in this case. Yeah. So it's frustrating. Yeah.
1: Well, well we've actually got a guest joining us uh, now. We've got Emma Brody, who is our campaigns officer here at SAFE. How are you doing, Emma? Hey, good, thank you. Thanks for having me today. No worries. It's so nice to have a chat with you, obviously, in this forum. Um,
2: could you tell us a little bit about your role here at SAFE? What do you do on a day-to-day? Yeah, so I work on SAFE's campaigns team. So we work on campaign strategy and developing effective calls to action to create positive change for animals. And I'm here today to talk a bit about a, a facet of our dairy campaign, which is a, a little bit disturbing, but really important that New Zealanders learn about. About this, this subject.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it is a little bit grim. Um, so, so fair warning to everybody listening today. But you're probably already aware that cows in the dairy industry do endure a cycle of repeated pregnancies and the removal of their calves during their lives until they're considered spent and sent to the slaughterhouse. But what you might not know, and I didn't know this, is that there is a hidden practice taking place across the country and it's being done behind slaughterhouse doors. And it's a practice called calf blooding and it is particularly insidious. So Emma, what
2: what is fetal bovine serum? So fetal bovine serum is a byproduct or a co-product of the meat and dairy industry and it's used for growing cells in cell culture but our concern is that this product is made from the blood of unborn calves which involves killing mother cows during pregnancy.
0: Yes, yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? How is this how is this made?
2: So what the industry calls cull cows are being impregnated or artificially inseminated prior to slaughter. Um, They're transported and killed, sometimes while they're heavily pregnant in the later stages of pregnancy. And after the mother cow is killed, her unborn calf is removed, a needle is inserted into their heart, and their blood is drained. And this blood is then spun down into fetal bovine serum and largely exported overseas. Yeah, and once it's exported overseas, I mean, what's it used for? So it's used to facilitate the growth of cells in some vaccines, in some lab-grown meats overseas, and other kinds of biotechnology. But it doesn't have to be because there are already commercially available animal-free alternatives.
0: Yeah, tell us about those those alternatives because I imagine the the farming industry will be wanting to talk about how it's, it's, it's so crucial in some of these products. But what are the alternatives and how, how, how do they compete?
2: Yeah, I mean, we understand that fetal bovine serum is still widely used across the sector. But thankfully, there are a growing number of ethical options. Um, some of these are something called a serum-free media and also human-derived alternatives. And in fact, some of these alternatives have been shown to outperform fetal bovine serum for cell survival and growth. So New Zealand should really be taking a leading role in pursuing those scientific advancements that reduce animal suffering rather than growing the market for this unethical product.
0: You mentioned human-derived alternatives. Just for those listening, could you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so serum can also be made from things like human plasma or human platelets, um, things that a lot of people donate regularly. Um, These can be used for exactly the same purposes as fetal bovine serum. And a lot of the research indicates that these are actually preferable for scientific reasons as well, not just ethical reasons.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I know that we're asking for pregnant cows to not be slaughtered, but but why that specifically? Why are we concerned that pregnant cows are being
2: slaughtered? Yeah, well, our concern is that many of these cows have already spent their lives being intensively farmed by the dairy industry, where they are just pushed to their physical limits and their emotional limits. Um, You mentioned earlier, they spend their lives in this cycle of pregnancy, birth, traumatic separation from their newborn calves and intensive milking. And then at the end of their lives, they're impregnated one last time before they're killed. And that is just no way to treat mother cows at the end of their lives. And we know that transporting animals is already risky and transporting cows during pregnancy can increase their risk of suffering from things like heat stress, dehydration, injury, and potentially early delivery.
1: Yeah, this this topic is, I mean, it's super distressing for me. This is all new. I had never heard about it. I didn't even know fetal bovine serum was a thing, let alone how it was made or what it's used for. Do we have any idea about how often this is happening? Do we know anything about the numbers?
2: Well, Cypher's actually had a kind of a tricky time finding information about this practice, a lot of it is concealed behind closed doors. MPI doesn't find it necessary to record how many pregnant cows are being transported and killed within New Zealand. Um, We have some data on how much fetal bovine serum New Zealand exports. And from those numbers, we've been able to estimate that at least 100,000 mother cows are being killed for this every year in New Zealand. But that may not reflect the true scale of suffering in this industry.
1: Alright, so obviously it's sort of um, something that we know is, is happening within the dairy industry, but is, is that where the buck stops? Is, is this a, a wider issue or what do we know about where it's sort of coming from and, and how it's happening?
2: So we do know that it's happening in both the meat and the dairy industry. Um, Some other information we have is that some cows are even giving birth on slaughterhouse floors in New Zealand. Um, That's information we obtained under the Official Information Act. And we know that about half of those cows are from the meat industry and half are from the dairy industry. So it's happening in both places.
0: Now, as part of this campaign, SAFE has launched an open letter. Can you tell us about that letter and and how how listeners can support it?
2: Yeah, so we're calling on the public to sign an open letter, which is addressed to our Associate Agriculture Minister, Mika Faititi and the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee, because on their agenda this year is the Commercial Slaughter Code of Welfare. That's something that's up for review. And we're calling for a ban on the commercial slaughter of pregnant cows in New Zealand, to better protect mother cows at every stage of life.
0: And, and, and to sign that letter, people can head to SAFE's website?
2: Yep, people can head to safe.org.nz to find out more. Emma,
1: this is, this is a tough topic. And I know for me, you know, obviously after signing the letter, I, I kind of feel like there's more that I wanna do because it's been a huge learning curve, um, hearing about all of the, the things that are happening in this, this system and this process has been super tough. So is there anything else that I and and listeners can do as well as signing the letter once we've done that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, SAFE has a wider call to action on dairy production in New Zealand, which is a call to government to create a plan of action for New Zealand's economy that removes our dependence on animal agriculture. We're looking to government to actually support farmers out of the sector to more ethical and sustainable farming systems. So you can head to SAFE's website as well and urge government to create that plan of action for New Zealand.
0: Well, it's it's a grim topic, Emma, but and I know you've been working on this for quite some time, uh, but thank you for chatting with us about it today and and best of luck with the campaign.
2: Yes, thanks so much for having me. Hopefully next time I'll be here to talk about something a bit more positive.
1: All right, so a bit of a, a left turn here, um, but recently um, the Green Party has been talking a lot about an issue called bottom trawling. They're calling for this bottom trawling practice to stop on sea mounts, and this comes after a white paper from Sea Lord, which the Green Party has called greenwashing essentially did you catch this white paper have you read it
0: i haven't read the white paper no but um, i have seen the petition that that eugenie sage has started from the green party yeah what's what's the story with it
1: So essentially, Sea Lord released a white paper last week, and it was talking about bottom trawling. And the Green Party has said that what that white paper has argued is that it's essentially okay to to continue destroying these centuries-old communities of of not only fish, but deep-sea corals, sea sponges, other marine life, because it can be found in other parts of the ocean. And I think a a really interesting point of contention there is that Sea Lord uses a definition of a seamount as something that sits at over a 1,000 metres. And what the Greens are saying is that actually seamounts over a 100 metres are actually also deemed seamounts. So that's the point of contention there. And I think what the Green Party is saying is that this white paper is... A form of greenwashing. So it's sort of trying to speak to people who are concerned about bottom trawling, about environmental issues, about overfishing. And it's trying to sort of cater to them without actually having to do too much in terms of changing that behaviour. So... Yeah, I just found that very interesting. I didn't know this, but the Green Party has said that trawl fisheries account for at least 40% of our commercial fishing. Did you know that was that much?
0: No, I had no idea. That's huge.
1: It's, ma- it's massive. And it's really, really, really important that we do protect those, those sea mounts and, and our, um, our ocean life, all these fish species. They're already being heavily overfished. So... I mean, I actually wasn't too sure what bottom trawling was, and I certainly didn't know what a seamount was. But so to start off with, a seamount is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a landform that rises above the ocean floor, but it doesn't breach the surface of the water. It's not an island, but it is not technically on the sea floor because it's, it's risen above it. Bottom trawling is where there's a large steel net or, or a weighted net that is dragged across the seafloor. The problem obviously comes there because it doesn't discriminate in what it picks up. So like the Green Party says, it's corals, it's every type of fish or, or sea life that's there. It's not just the orange roughy which which they're going for. Um, so it's it's massive. It's a huge, huge problem. And I know that you've got some reckons on, on bottom shoreling. I do. What do you think? Yeah.
0: Well, as you say, it is indiscriminate in what it pulls And what it pulls up. And this issue of bottom trawling, and I think it's admirable, um, and I support what the Green Party is doing in this regard, but the conversation is very heavily framed around conservation, right? It's protecting biodiversity, protecting the the fishery, so they're not being depleted and they're not being overfished. There's an animal rights discussion here, which I think is often overlooked, There's few things as exploitative than destroying the the natural habitat of of a species, which is essentially what bottom trawling is doing. It's, It's destroying the habitat and it's pulling up anything it can catch. And the amount of fishes and aquatic life that is either pulled out of the ocean or destroyed by the fishing industry, is massive. We don't even count the number of fish that we pull out of the sea by individual. It's measured by a tonne. Uh, if you counted it by individual, it's way more than the amount of land animals that we exploit. And and even land animals, the the, the biggest is, is chickens, right? We, we kill about 120 million chickens just for their meat uh, every year. And that dwarfs the other land animals that we exploit. The amount of fishes is huge. And I think it's something SAFE has been doing, I think, a great job over the last year in in raising awareness of of fishes and how they are treated. But that wider discussion about fish welfare and fish sentience and the rights of aquatic life is quite often forgotten about.
1: Yeah, you make a really good point because... We talk about this idea of, you know, fish by kilo or or however it's measured that isn't an in individual fish life or death. And it's a really strange framing that we seem to still have in the lexicon around fish sentience. And I know we talk about that all the time at safe, but in a wider sense, I mean, I've said to... Uh, people before you know I'm a vegetarian or vegan um, at whichever point it was during my life and people have said oh okay so you eat fish because it is that idea that fish are somehow removed from all other forms of animal life and I'm not sure what that is I'm not sure whether it's just that they feel more removed from us than say a dog or a cow or, or whatever it is but it seems to be an enduring thing, and it's so important that we talk about this and we start to change that perception. Because otherwise, yeah, it does feel a bit more okay to to treat them in these ways because we don't see them as having that same sentence or being able to feel pain or attachment or or have societies when they do. They do.
0: You're totally right that that and that comments about you know I've had that comments loads of times whenever I've said I'm vegan um, and the response will be oh but fish is okay right you know um, as if it's somehow different to any other kind of animal and I think you're right it is that people don't see themselves in fishes in the same way that they see themselves in uh, and cats and dogs. But even pigs and cows, a lot of people can see themselves in those kinds of animals. Um, chickens, it's a little bit more difficult, which I think is part of the reason why chickens get such a raw deal, so to speak, compared to other types of land animals. And and fishes, it's even worse. You know, a lot of people still think that fish don't even feel pain, right? Um, or are capable of experiencing things like fear and pain and, and joy. And the fact that they are sentient animals, just like cats and dogs and cows and pigs, is so often forgotten. And I wonder, you know, if if the same standards were applied to land animals as applied to fishes, we wouldn't be even catching them and pulling them out of the ocean with nets, right? Pulling a fish out of the ocean is kind of like drowning a land animal, really, when you think about it. So, there, we've got a long way to go with, <laughs> with fishes, but um, I think- this petition to ban trawling on seamounts, I think it's a good start, but really we need to be having that discussion is should we even be eating fish? Obviously, me and you would probably agree that no, we shouldn't be.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's a huge, huge issue. And it just seems to, like I say, it seems to just stick around this idea. And I don't know whether it's just because it feels a little bit confronting, perhaps when you are, you know, you enjoy fishing or you you enjoy eating fish it's probably very confronting to understand the the ways that that actually happens and that gets to your plate or you are enjoying a day on the boat and you don't want to think about that and I I understand that way of thinking but unfortunately it's just not the reality. Mm
0: I've got a story about that, actually. So, when I was young... Go on. When I was young, I used to love going fishing with my dad, right? It was... We did it every summer. We would go on holiday um, around Otago, and there was this little seaside town uh, called Pirukanui. Yeah, and there there was... We used to stay at this batch, this holiday home, and it had a dinghy, and me and Dad used to go out in a boat and go fishing. Um, Some of my favourite memories uh, are doing that, and it's going fishing with my dad and it's something I've had to wrestle with in recent years because now obviously I'm vegan and um, I'm opposed to fishing Uh, I wouldn't go out and do that anymore It, it was a difficult thing to come to terms with right that you know I had all these great memories of Doing this activity that I used to enjoy so much um, and, and now I'm directly opposed to it and people have questioned me on it. it's like well you used to go fishing well um, and it's like yeah well I did enjoy it and I've come to the conclusion now that you know I treasure those memories not so much because I was on the boat pulling fish out of the water I treasure those memories because it was uh, a day out with with my dad right and there are a whole bunch of different activities that we can all do with um, our friends and our family that doesn't include pulling fish out of the water, right? Uh, because that's, I think, what most people enjoy about fishing, right? It's something you get to do with other people. And, yeah, it's it doesn't have to be that way. But, yeah, I was one of those people. I loved to go fishing, but... What was the best part about it was you know going out fishing with my dad and i think that's something that um we all should consider you know the things that we do that we don't need to do and that would go for people who go fishing as well but yeah
1: yeah absolutely and you wouldn't be alone in that especially here in new zealand i mean I even went fishing. I've got to be honest, I hated it. I hated it. I did not have a good time at all. I remember being so excited to go out and go on the boat and spend time with family and things like that. But it was, to be honest, I found it so boring. Yeah. I found it so boring. And then when it came to killing the fish, it was just, that was just too much for me. So yeah. that was my one and done. I've never gone again. But I do understand, like you, so many people have those feelings and it does feel very nostalgic. Mm. And it's a very sort of, you know, accepted thing to do for fun. And I think it's really interesting when you contrast that with hunting, say pig hunting or, or deer hunting, obviously that's still seen as, as pretty okay in our society as a whole, um, but it's a lot more confronting when you think about it. When you think about having to, to kill a pig or a deer as opposed to just reeling in a fish, I think it's seen very differently and it's interesting to sort of dig into why that is and I think it touches on all of those things that we've, we've just spoken about, but definitely something that I think is a great thing to start, if you do still go fishing and you still love it, maybe, yeah, take a minute and think about what those things are that you enjoy. Like you said, is it that you enjoy going on the boat? Is it that you enjoy spending time with family and friends? And if it is that, hey, there you go. You're not losing anything by not pulling a fish out of the
0: water. So the fishing industry, they've released this white paper, um, which which the, the, the Green Party has called essentially whitewashing, The live export industry are trying to do a similar thing at the moment. So there was this opinion piece that was published, uh, was it last week or the week before? Within the last couple of weeks, August 11, the opinion piece was authored by Tony Noel and he is the chairman and co-owner of Douglas Nutrition and he apparently has experience in international FMCG which is fast-moving consumer goods, which is like supermarket products, and primary industries. And he is really going into bat for the live export industry, and he is essentially trying to say that blocking the live export trade could have implications for other forms of trade that New Zealand is part of. Now, I got incredibly frustrated reading this opinion piece, and I'm sure you did as well, because he has framed the discussion still as the experience of the animal's on the journey right they're loaded on the ship and they leave New Zealand and they arrive in a destination country that is all he's concerned with and the point he's making which a lot of people have tried to make as well is that the mortality rates on the journey are low when compared to on farms and therefore there's nothing to worry about it's all fine animal welfare is being taken care of And that is not the point. Uh, For starters, we did have a ship that sunk uh, after it left New Zealand in 2020. And he references that example in the opinion piece saying that we shouldn't ban a whole industry just because of one ship that has sunk. But it is not the only ship that has sunk. Other ships have sunk that haven't left New Zealand. They've left other countries, but other ships have sunk in the live export trade. And the biggest problem, which is something that SAFE has been harping on about for as long as I can remember, is it's what happens to those animals when they arrive in their destination country. More often than not, they're going into conditions that are worse than what they would have in New Zealand. They're going to countries with lower standards of animal welfare. And that piece of the conversation has been... Largely forgotten, and definitely by this guy who's who's backing the live export trade and this opinion piece, uh, which was published on Stuff, I should mention. Um, but yeah, they're still they're still fighting this ban, which is going to come into place in April next year. I wonder if that conversation will keep going and they'll they'll keep lobbying for the ban to be lifted after April next year.
1: Oh, I I would put money on it, to be honest, because it's I think it's just. From my perspective, it's an easy way to bring this issue back to something that's far, far oversimplified. So, like you say, the issue bigger than just counting deaths on board the ships. Obviously, we've seen those tragedies. We've covered them. We've talked about sinkings, disease outbreaks, all of that, all of that. But... Again, like you say, what's being ignored is what happens to those animals when they get into whichever country that they're destined for. We don't have say over that, but what we do do is we capitalize on the animal welfare standards in Aotearoa. You know, our politicians are talking about how world leading we are in this space. Often they go overseas and they trade off of this. I mean, whether that's true or not is debatable, but if we're sending our animals across the world, To places where animal welfare standards are in question or, you know, wherever it is that they're going, we don't have say over what happens to them when they arrive there. So, how can we stand behind those claims of that really strong animal welfare stance?
0: Yeah. And... It's an interesting point you raise about the fact that we capitalise and trade off of the animal welfare credentials, right? So this 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 author of the opinion piece, Tony, he's talking about how uh, a ban on live export could affect trade for for other meat products, and it's it's great that we our leaders talk about animal welfare and uh, advancing animal welfare, but it's it's constantly within the frame of how it benefits. The primary industries and how it benefits the the export of meat and dairy products. It's in a way a further, a further perpetuating the the cycle of exploitation for these animals. And again, it goes back to that larger discussion that we ought to be having um, about animal exploitation and whether we should be exporting them for for human benefit now speaking of trade we recently signed or the new zealand government recently signed a free trade agreement with the uk um and animal welfare was mentioned as part of that free trade agreement um who knows maybe the uk is about to become more radical in new zealand if they rename a roundabout
1: yeah yeah you know what you know what it has been a dark, dire episode here, to be honest. We've, we've covered some pretty dark stuff. But you're right, time for a bit of levity. You might have heard about this, I'm not sure. It was, it was pretty well publicised. But last week, PETA, or the, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, wrote to the Mayor of Leicester in the UK. And their request was to change the name of a roundabout that's currently called Pork Pie Roundabout. Apparently, it's named after a library nearby. I didn't know this, um, but it's a library nearby that's a circle shape. So from above, it looks like a pork pie, traditional pork pie. But So the, the pizza um, folks who wrote to this mayor said that they want the roundabout to be named vegan pie roundabout. What do you think about that?
0: I think it's I think it's great. Um, whether it happened or not is a different discussion. I can already hear the naysayers talking about how it's a, a woke agenda. You know, it's the the vegan propagandists out to to tell us how we should live. But I think it's fantastic. It's it's kind of funny. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, at least it starts a conversation, right?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to see what the conversation sort of does. Um, it's been fairly widely derided as an idea, as you might expect. Um, the mayor, I think, called it a pie-in-the-sky idea, which is, you know, something like this is always going to have <laughs> these puns and it's going to be a bit of fun. But I think at the crux of it, it does bring up something interesting. And, and to each their own. Anyone who has feelings about this, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but at the crux of it, it does bring in this idea of of what names mean and what what you know we can infer from 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 what we call things and how we refer to things. And I think it's quite an interesting conversation. Maybe some people think it's a bit ridiculous, but hey, it's it's an idea. It's a bit of fun. Um, Peter did say that the point of it would be to inspire the public to make healthier food choices, help the environment, and celebrate Leicester's heritage. Um, which is interesting. I'm not sure whether naming it Vegan Pie Roundabout, Vegan Pie Roundabout would insp- inspire people to make healthier food choices, but you never know. It could be the case. Um, well, interesting, though, the, the tie there is that, did you know that the word vegan was coined in Leicester?
0: I did not, actually. No, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah,
1: Yeah, Donald Watson, 1944, coined the word vegan. So, you know, there is a tie there. It could potentially be something of pride.
0: They have a point. That's a very good point in terms of honouring Leicester's heritage, right? I mean, why did they have to pick pork pie? Why, like, of all the pies they could have chosen, um, why didn't it have to be pork pie? Even if it wasn't vegan pie, it could be mushroom pie roundabout or pumpkin pie roundabout, that one maybe rolls off the tongue better. Um, yeah.
1: Pumpkin pie roundabout. Yeah, that's quite cute. I quite like that. Although
0: pumpkin pie is more of an American thing, I think. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, yeah.
1: And, and I suppose, you know, pork pie is very traditional yeah, true. to the area. And, <laughs> you know, it's that very specific shape, <laughs> which I think the library sort of looks like it. But, you know... Who who knows? Who knows what will go on from here? It could be that it changes. I'm I'm thinking it's probably not with the mayor's response. But you yeah. think? Hey, <laughs> shockingly. Right. Um, but but hey, you know what? I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's it's something a bit interesting. It's a bit of fun, hmm. and it's it's raised the conversation. Yeah, there's no denying that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, hopefully next time we chat, we'll have more positive things to talk about. Um, But thank you for listening to Animal Matters. Uh, As always, this podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, Aotearoa's leading animal rights organisation. We release new episodes every fortnight so make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify or whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If it isn't on your favourite podcast platform let us know and we'll make sure it is there. Animal Matters at safe.org.nz You can also subscribe to our newsletter at safe.org.nz forward slash AnimalMatters If you're listening on Apple or Spotify Leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. Thank you, Courtney. Until next time, Matewa.
1: <laughs> Thanks well. Talk soon.